Uh, you should, in your pew, have a copy of this song at the end of the sermon. Rather than singing the psalm that's printed in the bulletin, we're going to sing a, a different one. I'll explain the rationale for that later, but I want to make sure you had that. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's on uh, page 959 in these Bibles that you'll find in the pews as we continue in 1 Corinthians. And but before I read it, uh, since it's been a, a few weeks since we were in Corinthians together, I just remind you, this, this church in Corinth, this, this metropolitan city, commercial center, religious center, uh, light a, a lot of worship of idols there. Uh, it was a port city, so you had, you had nationalities uh, all, all over that, that converged there. And the Apostle Paul had, had gone there about five years before this, this letter was written, and he had, he had planted the church. He had led many of these people to Christ. The church had been uh, organized there, and now he has moved on to the city of Ephesus, and he's ministering there. And they have written to him a letter, which we don't have, but in that letter they asked questions about a number of issues which we have previously covered and now he's dealing with an issue they've raised and it's on the subject of spiritual gifts and so that's the background as we look at chapter 12 verses 1 through 11 hear God's word now concerning spiritual gifts brothers I do not want you to be uninformed you know that when you were pagans you were led astray to mute idols however you were led Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us that your word is given for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We ask that you use it toward that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Directly to the west of England is the country of Wales. Now, I wanted to say that because I recently mentioned to someone, I'm going to mention Wales in the sermon, and a person standing nearby said, are you preaching on Jonah? (laughs) Wales is the country directly west of England. It was there in the year 1878 that a young married couple named Henry and Hannah Roberts gave birth to their second son. They named him Evan, Evan John Roberts. As a child, Evan was taken by his parents to church regularly and even memorized scripture at night. And so from ages 11 to 23, he worked with his father in the coal mines there. And then later he became a blacksmith apprentice with his uncle. Uh, Evan did not have a lot of education, but even as a young man, he was known it was noted about him that he was a man of prayer. 
uh, either alone or at group prayer meetings. And so in 1904, if you've read anything about the history of revivals, you know that in the country of Wales, revival took place from 1904 to 1905. And it was one of the most uh, documented of all revivals in history because of newspapers at the time and just at the time in history when it could be reported on. Uh, in fact, the national newspaper of Wales called at that time the Western Mail, it reported daily the number of conversions that had taken place. And so famous journalists, preachers, and even the future prime minister, Lloyd George, vouched for the genuineness of this revival, that it just wasn't a flash in the pan, but it was a true move of the Spirit of God. Now, a key human instrument in that awakening, that revival, was Evan Roberts. There he was in his 20s, and in October of 1904, he began speaking at a series of small meetings which soon began to attract congregations numbering in the thousands. And then he and his older brother and a, and a close friend, along with some others, they began traveling around the country conducting revival meetings. Now, here were the four points of his message. He was not known as a great preacher. It's just that God used him in a powerful way. But he preached this message and had these four points. One, confess all known sin and receive the forgiveness of Christ. Two, remove anything in your life that you are in doubt or feel unsure about. Three, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. And fourth, publicly confess your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you read the writings of J. Edmund Orr and others who have documented revivals through history, they seem to have some common marks, their common characteristics. And those include that people of all classes and ages gather in, in large numbers with an unbelievable spirit of expectancy that God is going to work. Often the meetings last several hours. In Wales, sometimes they would last 10 hours nonstop. And yet the people that were participating lose sense of time and they would say it just felt like it was a few moments. That's a common characteristic in revival. There is a pervasive sense of the conviction of sin among everyone and there's public confession of sin and repentance and lives are transformed. In Wales, the pubs immediately went from being full to being empty. The crime rates dropped dramatically. I read of one magistrate who showed up at his court, and there were no cases that day. In Wales, from 1904 to 1905, there were an estimated 150,000 conversions. Later, cynics of this movement criticized it, saying that it wasn't genuine because of those 150,000 conversions, only 95% remained active members in their churches. Wouldn't we love to come close to that number today? Profanity was so... I love this story. I read this from several sources. In Wales, the profanity so diminished in the coal mines that the pit ponies that pulled the coal carts in the tunnels could no longer understand the commands their owners were giving them, and they stood still confused. It is said, though, sadly, that thousands of the men who were converted at that time died in World War I ten years later. 
The power of that revival spread also to America as well as to some other countries. Welts immigrants had moved to Pennsylvania and they were receiving news from their homeland. And in December of 1904, the same thing began to happen. Revival broke out in New York and then in much of New England. And the southern states were not overlooked by the Lord either. Here in Georgia, late in 1904 in Atlanta, the Atlanta newspapers reported that on one particular day, nearly 1,000 businessmen had united in prayer for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you take those numbers from 1904 to today, it'd probably be like 100,000 businessmen had done so. On November 2nd of 1904, with an unprecedented unity, stores, all this was in Atlanta, stores, factories, offices, closed in the middle of the day for an hour for prayer, including the adjournment of the Georgia Supreme Court. So it was a, a move of God. I, I told one of our church historians, uh, Harriet Comer, she was leaving this morning. I said, Harriet, I am told that uh, the newspaper in Atlanta in 1904 headline, one paper said, God comes to Atlanta. And a uh, she was on it. <laughs> I hope to have that picture. I hope to have that headline and show it to you uh, soon. Well, two observations from this, and you may be thinking, what does that have to do with this passage on spiritual gifts? Well, this passage is really about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned continually. Almost every verse mentions the Holy Spirit at least once. But there are two observations. One, only the Holy Spirit can change lives, whether dramatically with large numbers like in a time of awakening or for you and me here. Uh, I get to hear testimonies. I get to hear stories. And it's rare that I meet a person that was seeking God. They usually say, my heart was hard toward God. I may have been very religious, but I did not have a heart for God. And he sought me and he changed my heart. And that's definitely true of me. And, and so we see that only the Holy Spirit can change hearts like that. And also, with the case of Evan Roberts, God takes normal people. Perhaps even subnormal, you might say, a coal miner's son with limited exposure, limited education, and so forth. And he can use them to extraordinary purposes, as he did with Evan Roberts, who never sought uh, to be in front of a crowd uh, or sought any kind of reputation for himself. In fact, after this side note, after the 2000, uh, 1905 revival ended, Evan Roberts sunk into a deep depression that he almost never came out of. Still walked with God, still had faith, but for those of us that have dealt with that, that's when your body tells you, thinks you're trying to kill it, so it shuts down, given, and they basically, during those two years, he had, he had worked himself practically to death. Well, let's look at the passage for just a few moments. Some of you here know a whole lot about spiritual gifts. You've taught on this subject in Sunday school classes or even seminars. You've read a lot about it. Others, maybe you walked in here today and this spiritual gifts, what's that? Or what are those? Verse 2 speaks of the past where he says, I do not want uninformed. You know that when you were pagans... He's talking about before they were believers, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. But then verse 3, he speaks of their present. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Apparently, there were some in Corinth, and we aren't told whom, and everyone that tries to explain it is just guessing, that were actually saying Jesus is accursed. And they were within the church saying that. And he's saying that's not from God. That message definitely is not from God. But for a person to say Jesus is Lord 
They can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is Lord, at least the English translation of it, back into the languages they spoke, was the earliest Christian creed that we have. You know, we say creeds, we'll say the Apostles' Creed or other things like that, statements of Christian belief that have come down through history. The earliest one we think existed was just the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, to a Roman, that was powerful. That meant he's more powerful than the emperor or anyone else. To a converted Jew, that meant he is more powerful. He is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah. And he is God himself. And so for a person publicly to say Jesus is Lord had tremendous ramifications. They were identifying with Christ, and he's saying no one can arrive at that place in their life except by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who changes us. And then he, then going back to verse 1, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. And he starts by now concerning, that's the signal that he's dealing with an issue they raised in their letter, Now, I want you to know there are four texts, primary texts in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. I don't want you to write it down. I want you to memorize it right now. It's very easy. The first service, I mean, they aren't even awake, and they memorized it, okay? Here are the four places. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. All right, you ready? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians, and 1 Peter Okay, you've got it. If you look in those four chapters of the Bible, that's all the teaching and the listing of spiritual gifts. When you combine those lists together, they come to 19 different spiritual gifts. And yet, from the fact that Paul, at least, only gives a smattering of the gifts in each, uh, in each passage, it's clear that God can... That, that's not a limited number. It's not as though these 19 and only these 19. God can give gifts however and whenever and to whatever extent he chooses to do so. What is a spiritual gift? Here's the technical definition. It's an endowment of ability and capacity by the Holy Spirit distributed to every Christian for the purpose of increasing and building up the body of Christ. Okay, the purpose is the increasing and the building up the body of Christ. It's for the common good. What is it again? It's an endowment of ability and capacity by the Holy Spirit. So he begins by saying the first thing I want you to know about spiritual gifts is you need to know about them. Don't be ignorant about them. Why? Well, to prevent problems. Problems like failure to recognize counterfeit gifts, which had happened in Corinth. They had lacked the discernment to to know what was real and what wasn't. But secondly, they suffered from what we have today, and I call it pedestal Christianity. It's where someone that may have a tremendous public gift, speaking gift, preaching gift, or oratory, typically it's those, they are set up on a pedestal as being more spiritual than other people. And so in Corinth, there were some that apparently were gifted, and in their gifts, they saw themselves as superior to other believers. And when we understand spiritual gifts, we see that there is no place for a pedestal. Don't ever put... Listen, here's why I don't put anyone... Don't put me on a pedestal, not that anyone ever has. I will disappoint you, and so will everyone else. So all the gifts are just one is as important as the other. The gift of evangelism, the gift of helps, the gift of teaching. Some are more public, some are more behind the scenes, but all are needed for the common good. 
All right, what does he say about them? I'm going to primarily stay around verse 7. And, and, but he calls them here a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in verse 7. Uh, if you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is a mystery. The scripture about him is a mystery. He's the third person of the Trinity, as we quoted earlier from the, the Westminster Standards. And he comes into a believer at conversion to indwell that person. And he guides us and comforts us in our sorrow and he teaches us and he leads us into all truth and he conforms us to the image of Christ. He is far more active in your life, believer, every day than you realize. Every day he is sustaining you and, and conforming you to Christ and, and giving you wisdom from God's word. That is the Holy Spirit and often he's kind of the unseen, the unseen member of the Trinity that's at work. And we look for miraculous manifestations of, of him. And so it says here that we are to manifest him. Uh, how does verse 7 put it? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To manifest means to show forth. I'm going to show forth the, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to make him known. How? By the use of my gifts. By using your spiritual gifts, you put the Holy Spirit on display. And he gets the glory. We look for miraculous manifestations like we experienced in 1904 and 1905. I mean, how would, we, how would we respond if suddenly there were mass conversions like that? It's kind of scary to me because no one has control of it. Um, but we'd love to see it. And we'd say, oh man, that's obvious God is at work. But sometimes it's through small things, the small use of gifts. Many years ago, Barbara and I and two of our children, when they were babies, we were driving from Jackson, Mississippi, up to Decatur, Alabama. And we were on that interstate, I guess that's Interstate 59, that goes toward Birmingham. It was the middle of the summer, blazing hot, like it is now. And middle of the day, we're in the car, and I had an old Buick Skylark, and it begins to cut on and off, cut on, and I thought, oh, great. So we pull off the interstate in the forest of Mississippi. The only time in my life I've been to forest Mississippi. And we drive into the little town and go to a GM dealership. And I, I said, I don't know what's wrong with it. Uh, I said, I've, I've worked on this car a lot, so can I go back in there as the mechanic works on it? So they pull it around to the garage and this mechanic. And within no time, he, he had told me he was a believer. And the engine's hot, the car's hot. I mean, you, normally you don't want to get near something. And he's, he's got the hood up. He's pulling different parts. He's touching this. He says, well, try this, try this. And I am watching in awe at the work ethic and the zeal of this man to get this car fixed. Barbara and the kids are waiting in the air-conditioned waiting room. And, and he, uh, he knew our situation. And he finally, after a, a long time of checking everything, determined it was a distributor, if you're mechanical, if you're not, I don't even know if they still have those on cars anymore, but, but he had to replace that. But in the process, he burned his hands over and over and over, you know, fooling with this. I, I'd never seen anything like it. If he had said, Chip, let me take 30 minutes and tell you about my relationship with God, I would have said, you got it. After what I've just seen, this guy had a gift of service that I've, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. And the Holy Spirit, that though, I don't know if the dealership knew it, maybe would have gotten fired if they had known it, revealed him it was being made manifest by this guy's work and his help 
to get me and my family back on the road. Now that is what Paul is saying is we use our giftedness. The Holy Spirit is made manifest. He is shown forth. And often, and even more so, it's done in concert, like a symphony when, when all these gifts come together. Now, I want to read you an example from Charles Stanley. For example, when a man loves, loses his wife, when she dies, it's comforting for him to know that he will see her again someday. But that's not nearly as comforting as having friends around to hold him and listen and pray. When believers with the gift of mercy gather around him to listen, when another with the gift of administration takes care of all the funeral arrangements, when a neighbor with the gift of hospitality invites him to spend several nights with his family, it is as if Christ himself reaches down to take care of his one of his own. Through the exercise of these gifts, believers dispense a healthy portion of God's grace to this wounded soul. When a man or woman with the gift of giving pays another believer's electric bill, it is God's grace. When a pastor gifted as an exhorter stands to deliver a message, it is God's grace to the people. When a believer with the gift of service gives his or her time to meet a need, it is God's grace in action. It is not just a matter of being nice. It is God's manifesting the Holy Spirit on earth. Now that's the main point of this. I think often when we talk about spiritual gifts we want to get into the nitty and gritty and start splitting hairs over which gift is which and there's a place for that but right here the purpose is making manifest the holy spirit how many of you have seen what i just described in action most of you it was the vast majority at at the first service Uh, many of us have been on the receiving end of it and, and it's, it is just amazing, and the Holy Spirit is manifest. And you know what people say when they've gone through a tragedy and when the smoke begins to clear and they've been ministered to so much, and I'll, I'll say, how are you? And they, they won't say Sally or Joe or so-and-so. They say the church has been amazing. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? It's the body of Christ. That's why not one individual gets glory. They're not emphasizing one person helping them. It's saying the church, the body of Christ, is precisely what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 12, which is one of the four passages of spiritual gifts, including Romans, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians. Y'all with me? 1 Peter 4. Okay. Now, verses 4 to 7 also say spiritual gifts are given for the common good. The word variety is repeated over and over. It says there are varieties of gifts with the same spirit. It's showing the comprehensive spread of God's grace to his people. It's like a tree. On the corner here, we have this large magnolia tree. And you stand off and you see it. And, and you, the tree looks the way a magnolia tree is supposed to look. You know, it's unified. And you'll say, there's a tree. But then as you draw closer to it, you see, well, there's an individual leaf, a magnolia leaf. But then if you look closely, you'll see that no two of the leaves look exactly the same. Not exactly. And with an oak tree, it's even more so. Every leaf is different. So there is unity, but in that unity, there's great diversity. That's what Paul is saying here. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. It's like there are varieties of leaves, but the same tree. One and the same Spirit. And why are these gifts given? For the common good. 
Your giftedness is for the benefit of others. It may benefit you to an extent, but primarily it's for the benefit of others. You know what that means? Others' gifts are for your benefit. You need other spiritual gifts. They need yours. This means that to the degree gifts are not employed in the church, we are being deprived in the common good. If you uh, become passive and disengage and cut yourself off from other Christians, there are a lot of ramifications for that and how it will hurt yourself and what it will do to your own heart for God, off on on your own, and, and not having the support and encouragement from other Christians. But you've deprived us of your giftedness, and you are being deprived of the giftedness of others in your life. Verse 7, I told you I was going to stick close to that one. It says spiritual gifts are distributed as the Holy Spirit wills. They're called gifts because they're given by whom? The Holy Spirit. He gives them. He divides or distributes them. Now, it doesn't mean that you're locked in, and if you've got one gift, it will always be that gift. If you're in a situation like I found myself when I say, Lord, I am not gifted and equipped for this situation you put me in. Please give me, please give me this gift that I might be able to minister effectively in this situation. Each believer has been given a spiritual gift, but he does not give any believer all the gifts. So we all contribute to the life of the body. This should free us from the trap of comparison. You are unique. You have a unique personality, experience, and giftedness. And so you don't need to compare yourself to another person. You are free from that bondage. You're also free to serve where you are gifted. Now, I'm right-handed. I've always been right-handed. I write right-handed. I batted as a child right-handed. I threw a ball right-handed. Um, I, some people, you know, they'd write right-handed and they played sports left-handed. But I can write left-handed if I have to. But I have to concentrate like I don't concentrate when I'm writing right-handed because I don't think about it. And it doesn't look near as good, and it takes about ten times as long, even just to write my signature. And there's a similarity there to serving where you're not gifted. If you're serving in the area of your giftedness, it's, it's almost easy. It's almost effortless to an extent by comparison with if you're serving in the area where you're not gifted, you might can get it done. You probably can get it done, but it's going to take you a lot more time, and it's going to be probably much more stressful, and it may not be near as good. So your greatest joy, your greatest fulfillment in serving Christ will be when you're serving in the area of your giftedness. That, that's not rocket science. That's just, that, that's just pretty obvious. Uh, and also, your giftedness will make you aware of certain areas that people that don't have that gift won't know. They won't notice. And you, you with the gift of mercy, you know, hear about somebody in the church and say, somebody needs to go over there and help them today. And here's somebody that's not gifted. Or t- and they're like, well, what are you talking about? You know, why, why not next week? No, no, they need it today. They need it today. Uh, or, or the person with the administration saying, well, look, this is the way we've got to structure this thing. We've got to organize it this way. You want to make a journey? Fine. Here, I'm going to tell you the thousand steps that you're going to have to take to make that journey. Another person will say, man, you're just wearing me out. You're too tedious. And this person saying, you don't see all this? No, they don't see it. They don't have your gifts. 
and, and you don't have theirs. All right, what are the individual gifts? We've got two minutes. <laughs> Just very quickly, when you take those four lists found in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, you come up with 19. Um, we've already discussed apostles. That was in this 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Prophets were New Testament spokesmen for God whose messages came immediately from God by the Spirit. Teachers at lists, they instructed converts in the doctrinal truths of the Christian life. The evangelists majored on sharing the good news of the salvation with the lost. In the early church, miracles were part of the credentials of God's servants. In fact, miracles, healings, tongues, all belonged to what theologians call the sign gifts, and they belonged in a unique way, in a special way, at the infancy of the church. Gifts of helps and government, these are listed in, in uh, a cumulative list from those four passages have to do with serving others, the guiding of the church. There were several speaking gifts, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, which is the ability to understand and apply God's truth to a definite situation and exhortation, which is encouragement and rebuke. Giving and showing mercy relate to sharing material aid with those in need, as well as supporting God's servants in ministry. The gift of faith has to do with believing God for what he wants to accomplish in and through the church's ministry. The discerning of spirits was especially important in the early church since Satan tried to counterfeit the work of God. You take books on spiritual gifts, of which there are many, some far better than others, and they typically break the spiritual gifts into three categories, speaking gifts, sign gifts, and serving gifts. There's always a temptation to focus on the individual gifts and forget the reason why Paul listed them, and that is to remind us that they are ministries of one body for the common good. A few last thoughts. Well, do you know where you're gifted, Christian? Uh, you should know about gifts in general. Read, study the four passages. That's why I wanted you to learn them. Go home and read those. Uh, there are plenty of good books and articles on the subject. Then you need to know about your own personal gifts through prayer, through there's a multitude of questionnaires online you can go to that are tailor-made for different denominations. Um, about giftedness. Uh, but examine your own heart. What do you like to do? Speak to trusted friends that you respect. Then say, where do you see me effective in serving Christ? Where do you see me least effective? Then brace yourself and wait for them to answer. Um, third, use and develop your gift. Volunteer, don't wait to be asked. Don't be passive, be active. And... and uh, you may be a teacher. Well, maybe you're best at teaching children or young people or, or uh, men with men or women with women or, or large groups or a class or one-to-one and, and experiment and see where you're most effective. And then, and I want to say a word to the older people now. This is my last word before we sing our song. Encourage others. This is where older saints can be very, very instrumental. You should watch and look for opportunities to encourage younger people. Proverbs says a timely word delights the soul. Now, I had three years of seminary. Back then, it was a program of three years with that curriculum, and I found it very, very difficult. It was academically difficult. It was, it, 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 it was hard for me. And 
I cannot recall any of the full lectures I heard, of which there were hundreds, if not more. We read tens of thousands of pages. We wrote hundreds of papers over that three-year period. And I'm thankful for that education. It uh, It helped to develop my understanding of the Bible and ministry. But the most memorable thing that happened to me happened on a Sunday night at the little church where Barbara and I attended. I was asked to preach. I have no idea what I preached on. I doubt if anyone else remembers what I preached on. But I do remember this. In the congregation, which was about this size, the small group, was one of the professors that you know, Dr. Paul Koistra. He went on to become the president of Covenant Seminary. Then he served as the coordinator for our denomination's mission to the World Committee. He has preached here numerous times. Well, he was one of our professors. And he and his wife, at that time, Jan, they were, she's died since then, but they were there at the service. And after this service was over, I walked back and we had a casual relationship. He said, Chip, that was good. You're a good communicator. Three years hundreds of thousands of pages, or thousands of pages, hundreds. What do I remember? I remember an encouraging comment from a professor that I respected after a sermon. He didn't say you're a great preacher, you're God's gift to the church. He knew better than that. He just said, you're a good communicator. And he said it with enthusiasm. Proverbs, that's what Proverbs says, a timely word delights the soul. So you older, older, I don't know where to, what's older, you know if you're older, uh, you see a young person doing something and, you know, say, hey, why are you stacking these chairs after this meeting? Well, somebody needs to do it. This is really helpful. Maybe God's gifted you in the area of helping. Or I heard you explaining a doctrinal thing in the hallway to somebody, and you did it with extreme clarity. I think you might be a teacher. Why don't you come and do a five-minute lesson in our class? Or it could be anything. It's Say an encouraging thing as you see this. Because as you get older as a believer, that's what gives us discernment. You, you, we can, I can hear a person teach, stand up to preach, and, I'm, and I, this is probably true for all of us who have been Christians for a long time. In five minutes, I'll know if they have the gift of teaching. And the reason is it's clear. I can understand. Also, in five minutes, I can say if they don't have the gift of teaching. Because nothing's making sense. I don't understand. You know, this is garbled, and it remains garbled. And then when they try to explain it, it's even more garbled. All right, let's slam the brakes on this thing. This is the hymn that became the theme song of the Welch Revival. It came out of that revival, and so using the gifts from someone 100-plus years ago, we're going to sing this song. This is the song that kind of became the same song, uh, uh, as, I, as I said. Here is love vast as an ocean. So let's stand at, and receive the benediction, and then we'll remain standing. We'll sing.